Well, good morning to you. I have to hand it to you. There are very few churches that can put a welcome committee together that can bring snow for a guest. So I really appreciate that. Thank you for helping me out. Uh, I was a couple of weeks ago in Colorado, and the snow is chasing me. Uh, it, it dumped all over that congregation the morning that I was to speak there. Um, we're in a new year, and many of us are secretly, if not overtly, hoping that 2024 looks different than 2023. That should get an amen from someone, okay? Um, as we begin this new year, and it begins to unfold, it, I, I have a goal, and it might sound simpler than I found it already to be. It's lifted right from Proverbs chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I'm in a very well-worn territory, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. I always smile at the end of that verse because it literally translates, he'll make your caravan go straight. That's actually what it says. So when I look at this, look, some of the simplest truths have the greatest potential to change our lives. And a friend sent me a clip the other day of the now aging Pastor Chuck Swindoll, who's at Stonebriar Community Church in Frisco, Texas. And, and Chuck introduced a message the same way I want to introduce this one. I'm looking this year to do something in a new way, in a profound way that I hope you'll latch on to. It's too simple very difficult to pull off, but simple words. Trust God. From an international perspective, I had no intention of being here this morning. Uh, we're off to a rocky start. And, and here's the truth. When troubles arise and big problems loom, we are called by God to do first and foremost what we would naturally do last and least. Trust God. Mark DeMoss, in his little red book of wisdom, wrote this. He said, um, I will never forget standing on the lawn in my pajamas at 2 a.m. that Memorial Day weekend, watching my family in disbelief as flames gutted our English Tudor home into a stone shell. By dawn, everything we possessed was either lump or ash. I was 10 years old and was the first to escape the inferno, having sleepwalked, they told me, down the stairs and outside of my, on my own. The fireman saw me shivering in the early autumn air, and he wrapped a blanket around me while one of his colleagues was gently but urgently coaxing my sister to jump from the second floor window into his arms. The scene was chaotic. It was lonely and crowded at the same time. For a week or so, we lived with friends, he wrote, and then we bought some school clothes, rented a house for nine months and before moving again. I shake my head to think that long before home alarms were standard, all nine of us awoke from a deep sleep and emerged virtually unharmed. And plenty of stories, though, are quite different. One recent Hollywood night, uh, a Halloween night, my friend Bruce and his wife took their kids through the neighborhood while Bruce's father-in-law stayed back to care for the trick-or-treaters. Bruce's family came back to find their home ablaze, too late to save their children's grandfather, 
The next day when I walked around Bruce's charred lot, the smell of sodden ashes shot me back 30 years to my own family's tragedy. You know, good insurance policies, he writes, can replace bricks and furniture, and families can rebuild, but no policy can replace the loss of life or of special possessions, irreplaceable losses that have more to do with family value than market value. DeMoss pointed out something I've got to admit to you as we begin today. None of us, none of us, save God himself, know what the future holds for us. And to be honest with you, we all gaze into the future and all we see is fog. You might lose, like these people, your, fire, uh, your home in a fire this year. We might lose our spouse or a close friend to an unanticipated illness, an accident. It's very possible you could lose your business and with it your hopes and dreams of a solid financial future. You might lose a relationship that you have nurtured and cherished over your life. And, and I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to find it hard to believe, but I promise you it's true. We could even lose our nation. We could see our freedoms and our cherished history and our way of life come to an abrupt halt. Don't tell me it can't happen. I stood at the edge of Beirut and watched a society that had McDonald's hamburgers and ATMs come into pieces and end up looking more like a, a pile of rubble. I was in South Africa shortly after its government crashed and, and they found their currency falling and people that were once wealthy were now on the street begging bread. All of us, all of us, everyone in this room has to admit that we saw in COVID that all of a sudden the world changed and there was nothing you could do. Beloved, we are a lot more vulnerable and a lot less in control than we like to believe. And that truth seems to be bubbling to the surface a little faster every single month. And the truth is, <clears throat> all losses are painful. The smallest ones are unsettling, the worst ones are sorely painful. And here in the middle of that, I have this couple of thousand year old proverb that says, trust God, trust God. Now, I can't see many of you, but can I see the hand of anybody who will honestly tell, tell me, I have not mastered trusting God. The rest of you are having problems with lying. We will deal with you in another lesson later. But here's the truth. No, here's the bottom line. You can't name five believers who've got this mastered. Years of walking with Jesus, and we're still struggling because the next thing comes and we panic. Well, there are two things about trusting God we're going to talk about this morning. The first one's trust. The second one's God. And the truth of the matter is that if I'm going to build trust and squelch panic, I'm going to go back to that original phrase in Proverbs 3, verse 5, and it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What it means is I'm supposed to place my reliance on God. But here's the bottom line. I can't do it if I don't understand it. So I suspect it means a couple of things. Betach means I am commanded to do this. Now, go with me for a minute. 
If there's a command, it must be a choice. God will never command you to do something you don't have the ability to choose to do. So it's something I have to choose. It's something, though, that I trust in the Lord with all my what? My heart. So it's something inside of me. It's an inner choice. It can be observed externally, but it begins inside and then works its way out. And, and either actively or instinctively, if, I, if my behaviors have been disciplined, I make the choice to trust God. But trust is a learned choice. The second thing about betach, or trust, is this. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 5, uses the term again. Now, if you're not up on 2 Kings 18, King Hezekiah rose to the throne at about age 25. And, and, and in 2 Kings 18, it says this. He knocked down the high places. He crushed the idols of the people. He directed the people back to God. And then the writer remarked, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. In other words, Hezekiah's obedience meant that he didn't have to wrestle with guilt. He was trusting God. His faith was activated by doing what God had already commanded. Striving was replaced by calmness. Exhaustion was replaced by renewal. All of that because he chose not only to say, I'm going to trust God, but he ridded his life of those things that would make trust uh, 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 harmful or make trust difficult and make rest and guilt more prevalent. Here's the bottom line. Trust is measurable. You can measure it. If you couldn't measure it, God wouldn't call you to do it. He's not going to command you to do something when there's no measure of obedience in it. So somehow it's an inner choice. It's a learned choice. It's, it's something that I have to do that's measurable before God. But there's something else you should know about betach or trust. Trust is graduated. It's not black and white. It's more like a dimmer switch. Did you see the words in Proverbs 3? It says, trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. That's because, exactly because, trust can be half-hearted, right? Whether consciously or subconsciously, I can get to the place where I'm actually holding back on God. I'm, I'm putting a little bit beside. I'll trust you somewhat, but it's kind of like when you go out on new ice. You're doing this. With God, You know, I'll give you a little bit, but I'm going to keep my weight over here because this is what I'm really relying on. In a way, trust is deepened by experience, isn't it? It means that real trust will be tested. That's the way it grows in strength. So when God puts you in a difficult situation, he's not being cruel. He's actually growing your trust because it's deepened and broadened by experience. God is not being cruel. He's being a coach. Now, sometimes as we're growing, we need greater trust. We kind of trust, but we know where our trust needs to grow. I'm thinking of the guy, the father in Mark chapter 9, who turned to Jesus with his epileptic son and said, Lord, help my unbelief. He had some, but he needed more. 
And, and just by facing the fact that he didn't trust the way he should, he cried out to God and he learned in that moment a new recognition of his need of God. And by the way, guys, that's a prize by itself. It's one thing to need God. It's another thing to know I need God. It's one thing to need help. Do you got anybody in the shop who they're just sure they're doing it right, but they're not? The most dangerous person is not the person who's doing it wrong, but the person who's doing it wrong that thinks they're doing it right. And then there's the second phrase. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. Va'el binah tehechal tisan el means on your own understanding, do not rely. There's a couple of important truths there. You can hear it. We, we, we have to be able to take our weight and not put it in the wrong place. Trust is directed. Bitachal means to put it upon something. So when you're trusting, you're taking your weight and you're putting it on somebody else or something else to hold you. You sat down this morning because you trust in the chair. You trust in the chair with all your butt. You wouldn't be in it if you didn't trust it. I didn't see anybody going like this with the chair this morning. I mean, maybe you did. You're paranoid. You have other issues. But here's the bottom line. I'm saying trust in the Lord with all my heart, and I'm saying that I'm allowing God to take the weight of my life and carry that weight because he has the ability and I don't. Now, here's the thing. I'm either going to hear his gentle voice or my panicked heart when trouble comes. And we are not called to ignore our experience. We are called to bathe our experience in God's direction. So we ask him before we dive in. And, and we note that when we think we understand something, he understands it better. And the truth is, troubles are one of God's tools to reveal the wondrous deep well of his sufficient grace when we can't get through. Now, it's hard to see it in English, but in the Hebrew language, these phrases are actually in the proverb a, um, a comparative, not a contrastive. So here's what he's saying. You'll, you'll see it in just a minute. Um, in all your ways, acknowledge him. The proverb does not say, it does not say, when you have a problem, never consult your experience. Never consult your expertise. Never consult your capacity to plan a response. It does not say that. What it says is you're going to do all of those things, but you're not going to do them first, and you're not going to rely on them most. The fact of the matter is, if you do, you may solve the problem, but miss God's point in assigning the problem to your life. In all your ways, acknowledge him, drops the problem into the context of my walk with God. And it, 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 acknowledging him assumes a relationship with God, and it implies that I will bow and submit to him. So we're called to present our problems to the Lord first and then allow him to guide us through the problem. But, but how do you do that? Let's kick the tires on this and see how practical we can get. Well, first of all, I learned something with my wife. Now, let me just share this for the young marrieds. When your wife, gentlemen, tells you a problem, it's very often she has no need for you to answer the problem. That's not what you're there for. 
So I have a phrase now with my wife. Honey, am I supposed to be solving this or are you just telling me so I can listen? Because if you want me to listen, I'm right here, ears and all. Here I am, listening, watch me. And here's the thing. We are assigned a problem in our lives and we assume God wants us to fix all of what's broken in the world. We not only can't, that's not our assignment. Look, when the quarterback tells you to run your pattern, you run it not because you may, may get the ball on this play. You run the pattern you were given, even if it's only to distract some of the other players. The bottom line is, until I'm going to understand the limits of my responsibility in the problem, I'm going to worry about stuff God never assigned to me at all. So one of the things I have to ask is, Lord, what part of this do you want me to address? And, and, and then I need to ask him, Lord... Help me to see you through the, the messy world. I don't want to forget there's a sovereign God. What are you doing in this situation? What, what am I supposed to see? Don't just look at the problem. Look at him. In every situation, there's some place where God is exposing his character to help us build our trust in him. God used to drop things into your life and he was trying to get you ready for something that was coming a little bit later. We are ever going to be with him at the end. So let's get used to now letting him call the plays. In short, the proverb doesn't teach us to ignore planning. It teaches us to refuse to panic. So listen to it this way. Lord, since, you're in, since you have placed me in this difficult circumstance and since you've invited me in, and you told me to put my reliance on you, what can I do to deal with the issue that is going to show my commitment to follow you? Lord, what can I do with this issue? How can I hear you speak? How can I follow where you direct? How can I reflect your character to the people around me in the middle of this situation? Now, if I do that, you know what the last phrase says, right? And he will make your caravan walk straight. He will protect or direct your path. And, and what I notice in those verses is God directs when we let him. And God directs my path, meaning personally, it says my path, not just the world. God is involved in your life. And trust is about focusing first on God that he will teach me, and then after on the problem that he will solve it. Okay, so you say, I, I think I get what trust is. I, I get it. Well, here's the thing. You're halfway there. Trust God. The second half is you got to know where you're putting your trust. And one of the best places in all of Scripture, I love to go there when I'm in the Sinai Desert. Down there with the camels early in the morning, we break open Exodus chapter 34. Now, let me just catch you up on the scene for a minute. In Exodus 19, Moses is at the top of the mountain. God's giving him the law. 20 through 23, he gets the tablets of the law. God cuts them. God writes them. He gets them. But, but while they're up there, they begin to hear a noise. Moses goes to Joshua. Joshua says, I think we're in a battle. Moses says, no, God didn't tell me it was a battle. He said something bad is going on down there. Moses comes down off the mountain, and by 32, he smashes the tablets of God because there's a raunchy party going on. In Exodus 33, God turns to him and says, listen, I'm going to send you people into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. Because if I go any further with you, you're all going to be a pile of ash. 
And Moses turns to him in Exodus 33, 15 and says, if your presence isn't going with, with us, I'm not going. I quit. And God says, all right, all right, all right. I'm going to go with you. But here, I'm going to go with you and, and I'm going to ask you to lead the people. And Moses says, all right, all right, I will go and I will lead the people. But you got to show me something of yourself. When, when problems come and I feel pressed, I need to see more of God. And he says, please show me your glory. So in Exodus 34, God gives him a new set of tablets for the ones he broke. And he sticks them in the cleft of a rock. You remember this? And in the cleft of the rock, he passes by. You've heard of the Ten Commandments? These are the ten descriptions. God calls out God on God. This is who I am. You're never going to trust him if you don't know who he is. And when he walks by, he says these words. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin, yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishments of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. When God, the creator of every, everything, described himself, he started off by giving you his brand. He said, I am yud heh vav heh, Yahweh. I am the I am. Now, you know in English, in your Bible, wherever you see a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that means it's using the proper name of God. He has many titles in Scripture, but he has only one name, and that name is a, an abbreviated acronym of the phrase, Asher Hayavehoveve Yavo. It means I was and is and is to come. God's name means I am always on, always here, never late, never early, always there. There has never been a moment when I wasn't there. There's never been a place where I couldn't be. And by the way, in the scripture, he's a person, not a, not a force. He's not an idea. He has intellect. He has emotion. He has will. That means he has personhood. And he says, I am always here, always now, always on, ever present, ever engaged. And listen to me. You and I can trust God because he is not aloof. He's not all somewhere paying attention to somebody else. He's in your life. I know the singer says, from a distance. But guess what? God doesn't live with you from a distance. He is aware of every single factor of your struggles. The fact of the matter is he knows you on a genetic level. He knows you on a subatomic level. He knows you better than you know you. Every relative in your family tree, every moment you've ever lived, everything you've ever found tempting, he was there and he's always been there. And then he said, I am the Lord God. This is the ever-present one, but the word L on the end of it means I have unlimited power to deal with the things that I am dealing with. We can trust God because he says, I'm the one who's able to perform anything that I need to perform. Jeremiah 32 said it this way. 
Is there anything too difficult for thee? Matthew 19, Jesus was talking to people. He said, you know, with people, things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Beloved, listen. There are people out there trying to rationalize the power of God, especially when it's not looking good for the home team. They think they can grade God's goodness. They think they can discern God's character by their comfort and their circumstance, and you cannot do that. Knowing God has the power to perform, knowing that he can means if God isn't, it doesn't mean it's because he can't. If you were David and a lion or a bear approached your flock, you might conclude God was on vacation and not protecting you because you didn't know that what he was doing is putting you in giant slayer training camp because you didn't know what was coming. And I want you to understand that because I know God has the power, I dare to pray for things that seem impossible. And because I know God has the power, I know that when my strength is at my end and I am whipped, and I, I can crawl under his mighty wing and I can hide there. We can trust God because he's able to do what's best for his plan. And can I just say it? His plan is better than ours. Listen to me. God's plan for your life is better than your plan for your life. And then he said, I'm compassionate. This is the word rahum. Rahum is the word for the womb of a mother. God has a deep kind of love for you, a connection to you that is different than any other connection in the world. If you've had a good mama, that's the closest thing to God's, God's emotional attachment to you. Now, I got to tell you, I've been a daddy, and now I'm a grandpa. And I'm just loving it. And there is an attachment that parents have to their children that cannot be measured on any other way. And God has that for you. He loves you more than anybody else in your life. Nobody in your life in the past, the present, or the future, whether you stood in an altar and married them, whether you went through great experiences with them, nobody loves you like he does. Nobody. He says, I'm a God who's in love with you. You can trust God because he loves you more than you love you. If you love yourself more, you treat yourself better. There's another description. He says, uh, I, I am merciful. This is the word for compassionate or gracious, but it's really the word for favored. That might sound like a stretch, but did you know that from the very moment the first cells split and the spark of life of you, God favored you? Did you know that? Yes, you've had privilege. God has been with you, dealing with your life. You're not in this room because out of happenstance. God handpicked you. You can say whatever you want about the choosing of God, but you cannot read Ephesians. You cannot read Colossians and not conclude that God handpicked you for his team. If you're on it, it's because he picked you. So you can trust God because he's a God that's already declared that he favors you. And by the way, he demonstrated it at the cross, didn't he? He's not trying to rob you of fun. He's not trying to sadistically smack down your life. That's not the God of the Bible. Do you remember in Luke 1, Mary gets told she's going to have Jesus. And she celebrates the undeserved favor of this young woman. Don't you think it's about time you join her chorus? Do you really think you have what you have because you're that good? 
Or could it be that God is at work in your life? And he actually has favored your life. You know what else he says? He says he's slow to anger. Thank God. Does that get an amen from anybody? God is slow to anger. Amen? It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's interesting. The actual wording, orekafim, means God flares his nose slowly. Here's what I want you to see. In Hebrew, when you get mad, you go... Now, I don't know if you really do that, but that's what they say. And so it says God has a long nose. He's not going to blow up. He's not short-tempered. And the moment you do something boneheaded, he's not going, there's one having fun, get him, zap. That's not the God of the Bible. In fact, it goes on to say he's abounding in faithfulness. The Rav Chesed, by the way, if you learn only one Hebrew word in your life, don't learn shalom. Learn chesed. Can you say it? Chesed. Don't spit at people. Chesed. Okay, Chesed is a deep, abiding love that's covenant that will not let you go even when you wiggle. It's the handhold of my daddy when I was standing on a metro platform wiggling like a little boy, not realizing that there was peril if I took a step forward. And my dad grabbed me in a way that he was not going to let me go no matter how much I wiggled. It didn't matter whether I knew or understood what he was doing. He was not going to let go. That's chesed. That's chesed. It's a love that will not let me go. And you can trust God because he has said in words of promise and in graphic terms of the cross, I'm going to stand by you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to root for you. I'm going to cheer you on. I am going to hunger for your successful walk. And the moment you leave this body, I'm going to be saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'll be there at the end. You know, I find it interesting because God made an unbreakable, unchangeable covenant with you. And then he said, I'm abounding in truth. Rav Emet means I am absolutely fixed, stable, unchanging, reliable, factually truthful. I do not change the definitions with the popular opinions. I don't change my contract. I am a sure foundation. I am a reliable companion. I am a truthful God. What does that mean? It means you don't have any skeletons in the closet God doesn't already know and he loves you anyway. Stop trying to hide from a God who knows everything. You look like an idiot. The truth is, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His definitions of right and wrong don't bend to popular consent. His records cannot be adjusted by people who win the argument. Then he said an eighth character, I am the one who keeps faithfulness for thousands. Notzar chesed le'elefim. It means I'm the watchman on the tower of my covenanted community. You know, your God is vigilant and his eyes are piercing. Don't hide from him because you can't. You can trust God because he's on guard duty and he's watching over your family and he's watching over your life and he misses nothing. And then the ninth character statement. I'm the one who forgives wrongdoing, violation of sin and Violation of my law. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. I lift up your guilt. I resolve your rebellion. I correct it when you miss the mark. 
When you raise a fist at God, God grabs it and holds it tightly. You can trust God because he has seen you at your worst. He has heard your thought life and he has decided he wants you anyway. But I, before I close, should tell you two more things. Two things you need to know. God said he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Venikalo means I will not clear those who are defiant. Nobody struts in front of God. You can count on God to forgive you, but only if you're going to admit that he's right and you're wrong. When you drop your resistance to following him, God is in the business of, of, of grabbing you and pulling you close to him, but he will not let you negotiate terms with him. That's not how he works. His love does not blind him to those who choose to remain in rebellion. See, God's a realist. One sin kept Adam out of the garden. One sin kept Moses out of the land. God takes sin seriously. And the heart of sin is not what you're doing. The heart of sin is the rebellion where you raise your fist to God. So finally, Moses heard God say this. I am very busy inflicting the punishment of fathers on their children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Some people are uncomfortable with that, but I think that's painfully obvious. A nation that overspends bankrupts its kids. That, that's what happens. And, and the fact of the matter is, we are living right now today in the Middle East with a problem, all because Abraham couldn't get his pants on and keep them there. The, the, the fact of the matter is our sin actually matters later on. It shows up later on. And God does not erase the effect of your sin immediately. If you come to Christ but you've been eating badly, you may get eternal salvation, but you still need Weight Watchers. Why? Because it's going to take time before the effects of what you've done go away. So here's my point. You can trust God only if you're willing to submit to God. And he's not going to force you to trust him, but he is going to force you to stand before him. Every single person will stand before him. So this is the truth of trusting God. He's worthy, but the trust comes at a cost. Listen to me, because I'm just about to close. I've used up my time. You can trust God because he's attentive to you and he is not aloof. You can trust God because he's fully able to pull off the plan that he's got for you. You can trust God because he loves you more than you love you. You can trust God because he said and done what shows that he's nuts about you. He favors you. You can trust God because he's not going to blow up the first time you mess up. You can trust God because he's shown that he is on your side. You can trust God because he tells the unwavering truth that does not change. You can trust God because he guards his own and he misses nothing. You can trust God because he's seen you at your worst, but he's decided he still wants you. You can trust God. The question is, will you? Today I can tell you, you can learn both what trust is and the character of God. But here's the bottom line. Beloved, everybody, everybody I know has the same hunger in their heart. All of us want to be part of something grand, something more important than the mundanity of our life. 
We all want to be loved by somebody and seen as incredibly valuable by somebody. We all want to know about our origin. How did we get here? Our purpose. Why are we here? Our destiny, where we're going. We all want those things. Let me plead with you. God has those for you. But you have to be willing to trust God. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look into your word and to, uh, to observe our need to trust. To look into your word and to observe who you are. You are beautiful beyond description. Oh God, we open ourselves to you today and we say that we, we need to drop the rebellion Put down our fists and recognize that you are here and you are ready to work in us. You are ready to change us. And the only thing, the only thing you desire is our willingness to submit to what you are doing. We can panic or we can trust. And we can trust with all our heart or we can keep one foot tucked aside. Help us to learn to trust you. In Jesus' name.